Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Welcome again to Horizon West Church. Uh, it's an important weekend, and I, I hope that you know why, especially if you are dating or especially if you're married, but it is Valentine's Day weekend, so welcome to Valentine's Day weekend. How many of you have seen, or let me say, ask it this way, how many of you part, have participated in one of these things that's floating around Facebook, the, the what's, what's it called even? You're supposed to tell like how you met and who said I love you first. Have you guys, at least, how, how many have seen that? You haven't even seen it. You guys have been in Ohio. You don't get internet. Um, also, those of you online, it, let us know as well if you participate. How many of you have participated in one of these this time around? You guys aren't romantic at all. This is terrible. I haven't either, if I'm being honest. But what I did do is I, I found a picture from Nikki and I's first Valentine's Day. We're going to throw that up right here. Look at that. I would say we look like babies, but I was like almost 30, so I haven't changed a whole lot, but, um, but that was our first Valentine's Day, and the reason we were so dressed up is because we lived in Podunksville, and we were coming to Orlando to go to Ruth's, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. It was a big, big deal, and so I wore a suit to, to, the, to the restaurant, but anyway, that was our first Valentine's Day. I just thought it'd be fun to share that. It has nothing to do with anything. What we are going to do tonight is we're going to dive back into our Rebuild series. If you've been tracking with us the last several weeks, I hope that you've had something of the experience that I have had in even just the sermon preparation. Uh, it has been so incredibly rich, uh, just being in the book of Nehemiah and being in Scripture. And, and man, it's like a gold mine. I feel like, you know, I've got to cut out a whole bunch of stuff that I want to talk about to just pack it into 30 minutes or so. But but God is just revealing so much uh, to me through the message. I hope he's doing the same uh, to you if you've been with us the last several weeks. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 7. We're also going to go into chapter 8 uh, tonight. And so uh, we're just going to dive right in. Let me, let me start at chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 of Nehemiah. We'll have it on the screens as well uh, so you can follow along. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed... I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he, Hananiah, was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. Now the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. Now, a, a real quick uh, bringing up to speed is that Nehemiah, a, a Jewish leader, has left from this place called Susa, almost a thousand miles from Jerusalem, and he has started a building project that has taken only 52 days to rebuild the entire wall of Jerusalem, a, a massive city. In fact, the text says it was wide and large, but there were not a lot of people in it. Why? Because they had been sent into exile. They'd been taken uh, captive by the Babylonian Empire. This is just historical uh, facts. But through Nehemiah, God saw fit to allow the people to rebuild, those who had returned, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And on day 52, the work is completed. And I want to just quickly highlight two names that are mentioned in those first four verses. 
very similar names. In fact, the first time I read it, I thought they were the same person. So first is Hanani, that's in verse 2. And Nehemiah refers to him as my brother Hanani. Well, if you know the story of Nehemiah or you've been following along with us the last several weeks, that might trigger something in your mind because this guy has shown up before. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 1, in the first verses of the book, Nehemiah says that some men from Jerusalem came with my brother Hanani. And it was Hanani who informed Nehemiah that the wall was in shambles, that the gates had been burned down. It was Hanani who exposed to Nehemiah how desperate the situation was in Jerusalem. And so even though we only see him before the building and after the building, yet it was Hanani, the biological brother of Nehemiah, who pushed the first domino to start the work of rebuilding the wall. One of the things that I love about the work that was being done in this Old Testament passage, one of the things I love about the work that God's doing in his church and among his people is that we are not all Nehemiah. We're not all Ezra. Some of us are Hanani. We just said something to someone. We, we just offered that word of encouragement. We, we just planted the seed of an idea. Hey, have you guys ever thought about doing this? Or maybe you had an idea to birth a ministry and God would send other people. But, but it's those first domino pushers that God can use to do great things as he did with Hanani. And, and then Hananiah also in the same verse, the thing I love about this guy is we only know one thing about him. The only thing we know about Hananiah is what Nehemiah says about his character, that he was faithful and a God-fearing man. Can you imagine that, that if somebody put your name into a historical record and 2,500 years later we were reading about it, can you imagine if there was just one thing that person were to say about you, what would it be? What would you be known as? What would be the thing that people would say, this is what was true of this man, of this woman, of this child. For Hananiah, is that he was faithful and he was God-fearing. I don't know about you, but I would be okay with that on my gravestone, right? I don't need my accolades. I don't need the accomplishments. I don't need all the, the, the gifts and the skills I had. If it would say about me, if my legacy would be, he was a God-fearing man and he was faithful, that would be enough. Go to verse 5 of Nehemiah 7. Then my God, and this is Nehemiah speaking, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it these words. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. And they returned to Jerusalem and, Judea, and Judah, each to his own town. Uh, we're going we're gonna to get to chapter 8 in a minute, and that's really where we're going to camp out. But the reason I read these two verses is there is a phrase that I think is massively important, and it can go unnoticed if we don't stop. There's a phrase in those verses, and the phrase is this. Nehemiah says, then God put it into my heart. Think about what Nehemiah has just accomplished. He's traveled 1,000 miles from the capital of the Persian Empire where he's serving the king. He's traveled almost 1,000 miles to Jerusalem, a city he's never been to, likely. I didn't say Siri. I said city. Please remind me to put myself on airplane mode before I go up. That would help. 
Um, he's in a city that he's probably never been to. He's rallied the troops, so to speak, and a few people living in the city of Jerusalem in 52 days have built a wall around the entire city. It's a massive accomplishment. And if I'm Nehemiah, I might pat myself on the back and kick my shoes up and go, we're done here. Nehemiah finishes the work God's called him to, and he turns up his hearing aids and says, Lord, what's next? What what, what do you have for me next? And God says, here's what I have for you next. Then God put it into my heart to do more. I'm going to embarrass the fire out of her, but I met with Barbara Pennington earlier this week. Um, Nikki and I did. And you know Barbara, after years, and and I think it's been, it was decades of teaching and pouring her life into children, said, Pastor, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you and Nikki. You know what the meeting was about? How are we going to teach our children to love God and to love his word? And here's ideas and here's papers and I made copies and and, and this is, why? Because she's not content. She's not just going to coast to the finish line. She's saying, this is a passion God's put in my heart. I've got a history, I've I've accomplished, but what is next for me? Well, since I embarrass one, I'll embarrass another. You know, Greg Lockie, Greg came to me the week before he retired. You know, a lot of people are thinking about the week before they retire, doing this, right? Nothing wrong with golf, but here's what Greg said. He said, Chris, I'm about to retire, which means I'm going to have a whole lot more time, so put me to work. And Greg is week after week in the parking lots out here. Some of you don't know, he's at our John Young camp at Sunday mornings doing the same thing, serving the Lord. He's the guy when we're doing a food drive and, hey, I need somebody to figure out the, the, the assembly line. He's there. Why? Because people of God understand God's never finished. If you're breathing, God has work for you to do. Wrestle with this question in your own heart. Where are you tempted to rest on past accomplishment rather than moving into the next that God has for you? I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people. Oftentimes, it's people who have done great spiritual work. And it's all about, man, you should have seen the church I used to pastor. Man, you, did you know I was the one that started that ministry back, back in the day? Yeah. Do you know how many people I led to the Lord when I was in seminary? It's like, that's great. That's great. What's next? What's God got for you now? You're not just going to coast to the end. God has plans for you. But we fall into this, what I call Uncle Rico syndrome. You know Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite? Man, you should have seen me in high school. I'd throw that ball a mile. I'd throw the football over that mountain right there, right? You're like, oh, gosh, I've heard the story a thousand times. Like, what about now? What about, so, so let me give you an illustration. When you're driving, when you're driving, you, you've got two things in front of you. Uh, more than two. But two, two things you got in front of you. One is a windshield, right? And the windshield is huge, right? Because most of your time and attention is going to need to go there. And then you've got this little mirror in the middle called a rear view because every once in a while you need to look to the back for a point of reference. But some people have switched those and their rear view is massive and they can barely see out of their windshield because they're coasting on past success and accomplishment. Though Nehemiah had accomplished a great building project, a great work of God, he understood two things. One, kingdom work is not about the past, it's about the present. And two, kingdom work is not about buildings, it's about people. This is where the pivot in chapter 7 is going to come. The story is going to pivot from a building project about a wall to a people project. Ultimately, that's what it was about 
all along. And Nehemiah rightly understood that. And so we're going to jump into chapter 8. You can flip over there. We'll have it on the, on the TV behind me as well. And here's what we're going to see in the, in the remainder of the time that we have. There's going to be an introduction that's going to lead to a handoff. You'll see that in the first verse here. And then I want to highlight five marks of a kingdom movement. And the reason I do that is twofold. One, I want you to see the biblical basis for what we do at Horizon West Church on the weekend. We didn't invent the, the, the things that we do, the, the preaching and the worship. This is what God's people have done for thousands of years. Now, the songs change as they should. The styles adapt to the culture as they should. But the basic moves of God, are, you can mark them. They demonstrate what happens when God is moving, kingdom movement. And here's the second reason. Not only do I want us to have a biblical basis for what we do on the weekends, but I want you to be able to, to discern kingdom movements from non-kingdom movements. There are a lot of movements in the world, politically, uh, religiously, spiritually, that are not kingdom movements. And they might look like it, and they might carry a certain uh, flair for the moment, but ultimately they die and they fail because God is not in them. And so these five marks are going to help us to discern, man, when we see something, we go, man, is this, is this of God? Is this a kingdom movement? We're going to see evidence of what is. Nehemiah chapter 8, let me dive in here to chapter, uh, verse 1. I'm actually going to read the whole sequence and then pull out these, these five marks. As, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Let me pause real quick. This is Ezra's first appearance. But what we're going to see is that Nehemiah, having completed the work of the building project, understands that Ezra as the priest, now it's, it's his turn. Now, now it's about the people. So this handoff takes place. Verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And Ezra read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkajiah, Hashem, Hashpadiah. I thought if I went fast enough, I could get it. These guys all stood there. You ever have one of those moments where you're like, am I going to stop or am I just going to push through? We're going to push through. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benai, and a whole bunch of other people, the Levites, <laughs> helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites called all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Five marks. Five marks of kingdom work. Here's the first one we see in the passage. The presence of unity. I want you to note the emphasis that, that Nehemiah, the great lengths he goes to to show that the people were united in those first few verses. Verse 1 all the people were gathered as one man. Verse two, both men and women and all who could understand. Verse three, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. This was not just the people who were uh, religious leaders. It was not just the scribes or the Levites or even the people who had built the wall. It was everyone who was called by God's name together in one place for one purpose. There was the presence of unity. That expression, those who could understand, probably refers to older children, right? So they didn't have like the toddlers there, but they did allow the older children and the teenagers because they needed to be there as well. Some of you know and some of you don't that this weekend our youth and several from Horizon West Campus are part of something called Surge. It's a, it's a one-day event with our John Young Campus where, where leaders are pouring into them and they're worshiping together. Why? Because we've got to pass that baton. We've got to instruct the young people in the ways of the Lord, and that's what's happening here in Nehemiah 8. One of the things that we talk a lot about uh, here at Horizon West Church, and it's our vision statement, I want to share just the first part of that, but we say we exist to be a diverse community of good friends together. And that's important to us because it was important to Jesus. This wasn't something we just kind of made up out of thin air. John chapter 17, Jesus' very last uh, prayer, uh, at least his last lengthy prayer, John 17, 21, he said, praying that they may be one, all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want to leave this up there for just a moment. I've been reflecting a lot on John 17 uh, religious people call it the high priestly prayer. It's just the last real intense prayer. Jesus is in the garden. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be crucified. What is on the mind of Jesus in that moment? It's this right here. Father, I want my church to be one in the same way that you and I are one, to which we ought to go, what? Time out. L think, think about this. The Father and the Son, the first and second part of the Trinity, are one without any complication. There, there's never a, a movement or a moment where they're not aligned. And he says, Father, that's the way I want my people to be. But Jesus has to know it's going to be messy. I mean, that's, that's inviting chaos because we're different. We think differently. We look differently. We sometimes vote differently. We have different languages and cultures and, and, and gift sets. And Jesus said, yeah. And I want you to figure out, with all those wild, diverse, you know, differences, I want you to figure out a way to have a oneness that looks like God himself. You know why? Because if you will do that, church, if you will do that, followers of Jesus, this is what's going to happen. The world's going to believe. They're going to go, I can't explain it any other way. I mean, I can understand if they just looked differently or, or, or even different ethnicities, but they don't even speak the same language. And more than that, some of them even vote for different people. And nobody in our world today is coming together who thinks differently in that way, but these people do. Why? Because we say there's one reason. Because one day we're all going to be 
bowing our faces before the throne of Jesus saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory forever and ever. And we're ready to start that party now. So kingdom movement always reflects this unity. It's not perfect unity. It's messy. It's follow-up conversations. It's, I have my feelings hurt. It's, I don't know if we can keep, but we're going to try. And it's all of that, but it's unity. Number two, second kingdom work we see here, second mark of kingdom work is the priority of scripture. There is no question in my mind, and I think any serious reader of this passage, that there is a centerpiece to this gathering. It's not the wall, it's not Ezra or Nehemiah, it is the word of God. Each of the first five verses of Nehemiah 8 mention the book of the law or the scripture. Not only does it get mentioned in each of those verses, but notice what they do. They build a wooden platform so that when Ezra reads it, he's elevated. When it says in the passage that Ezra stood above the people, don't misunderstand what it's saying. Ezra was not above the people. The priests were no better. The pastors, to put it in our context, the worshipers, are no better. We don't stand on a stage because we think that, that we've got some mojo that you don't have. But we esteem the word of God. And we go, man, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take some time. It's going to be quiet. It's going to be 25, 35, 40 minutes. And we're going to hear and learn from God's word because we value it. That's what was happening here. Not only the wooden platform, but he, he reads it from morning until midday. And I thought it would be good for me just to emulate that by... No, I'm just kidding. Some of you got really nervous. You're like, I have to get to dinner. Um, but that's commitment, right? I mean, from early morning until midday. And by the way, the people are standing. They're, they're demonstrating their reverence for the word of God. And, and I don't see evidence that they're like, oh my gosh, when is this dude going to stop reading? They're listening. They're tuned in. They, they've prioritized the scripture above all other things. I came across a video this week, uh, a pastor named Wayne Cordero, he pastors New Hope Christian Fellowship in, I believe it's in Maui, uh, actually in Hawaii, but he talked about going to China uh, earlier in his ministry when he was a younger man, and, and these Chinese believers were, were just talking about, you know, their experiences, and he, it, more and more on, in one-on-one, he, he kept hearing different ones that say, you know, when I was in jail, yeah, when, and when I was in prison, so he said, time out, it was just a group of, of pastors, there's only 23 in the room, he said, all right, how many of you have been to jail because of your faith? And 18 of them raised their hand. So then he kind of probed more deeply and, and, and started talking about scripture. He, he goes, all right, well, let's, go to, let's go to 1 Peter. And, and he does that and he noticed several of them hand off their Bibles to somebody else. And they're like, why did you do that? And they said, well, we have that book memorized. <laughs> He's like, but you're not even allowed to have Bibles in China. He said, and they said, right. But when we get access to them, we write them down on paper and then we memorize them so that if they get confiscated, we've still got God's word in our heart. So he tells the story, and, and, and as he's leaving there, and he's just shaken and, and just humbled, and he says, so how can I pray for you? And they said, well, we see America, and you guys can like gather together and read and listen to the word, and you can sing songs of worship. And he said, would you just pray that we would get a little taste of that, that we could become a little bit more like you guys? And Wayne said, I will not pray that prayer. He said, I will not pray that you become more like us, but I will pray that we become more like you. Amen. Friends, scripture is what makes the difference. In fact, I would say it like this. You, you cannot grow spiritually without a steady diet of God's word, and you cannot stop from growing with it. 
It is the thing that makes a difference. I can tell you in my own life as a 15-year-old, when somebody challenged me with a faith that was so big and real that I went, man, where does that come from? And I opened up the Gospel of John and I came to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And the word of God ushered me in. And I started doing uh, what's called Bible quizzing. Any Bible quizzers? We talked about that earlier this week. Or Bible drill. Anybody ever do that? And I started memorizing scripture. Like, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or I am crucified with Christ, Paul said, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. You know how many of those verses I memorized in seminary? I didn't quote those to impress you. I quote those to tell you, stop making excuses. If you've got the Bible, you can grow in your faith. In fact, if you've got the Bible, there is no reason you shouldn't be growing in your faith. You may not have a knack for scripture memory. Everybody's a little bit different, but you can know it better and you can love it more. These folks in Nehemiah esteemed and prioritized the scripture. They understood what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11 about the word of God. God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose. And it will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So go ahead and test the Lord in that. Man, God, are you telling me that if I will read your word and prayerfully through the Holy Spirit, if I'll receive it and that that, that, that will accomplish it for sure, like it's a sure thing? Yes, God says, my word has the power to do that. Look at one more uh, part of that in, in verse 8, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8. Do you notice where it says uh, that the, the people or the Levites, they gave the sense? Isn't that a funny phrase? So in other words, even at that time, they understood yet, yet yes, the reading of the word is important, but you've also got to understand it. It does no good just to, and we've all done this, right? Like you read like, uh, like several verses and then you're like, wow, I was just planning dinner that whole time. <laughs> It literally did not, comp, you know, one thing didn't get through. So you go back. Well, these leaders understood, hey, we're, we're reading the law, but we're not going to just assume that somehow by osmosis, all of a sudden, it, but we're going to explain what it means. We're going to give the sense. The Hebrew there means they took it paragraph by paragraph. It's what we do. It's the, the goal of preaching, right? A lot of guys are going, man, you're like, I think this guy's trying to impress his seminary professor who's not in the room, but it's so academic, and you're like, no, 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 it's the opposite. The best preaching is making it plain. It makes it clear. It helps people to understand it because it's not about being impressed. It's about understanding and being changed by what you understand. The goal of preaching is not to impress, but to make clear God's truth. Let me give this word of warning before we leave this second mark of kingdom work. The stirring of emotions through music or the spoken word or the preached word can never and must never replace the robust teaching and understanding of God's written word, the Bible. 
and there is a whole lot of the other out there, right? And we don't need to throw stones. We just need to have discernment. If you see a move that's supposedly of God, but the word is kind of like the afterthought, or the word is twisted or manipulated to mean something that it clearly doesn't mean, that's not a move of God. That is not a kingdom movement. Here's the third mark of kingdom movement that we see in the passage, the practice of worship. Go back again to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, verse 6 there. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The practice of worship, do, do you notice something in that verse that's uh, missing? I notice that there's no music happening. And, and there's nothing wrong with music. Scripture actually commands us to sing. The problem is, for a lot of us, we've substituted one for the other. We go, oh man, I love that worship. That church has great worship. What that means is, I love the music. But you can't love worship. You can only love the God who is worshiped. Right? And, and so these people weren't going, okay, Man, the music dropped just right and the beat was good and man, we're going to fall with our faces to the ground. They literally had a priest reading scripture and they fell on their face in worship, right? This is why those two marks, the, the, the priority of scripture and the practice of worship, they're inseparable. I was thinking about as we sang the songs earlier, there's scripture and it wasn't necessarily that we were quoting it, but when we say, I am who you say I am, John 1, 12, to those who uh, received his name, to those who believed him, he gave the right to become children of God so we can say, I am who you say I am, right? The goodness of God, we, Psalm 23 quoted it before. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, running after me all the days of my life. We're, we're, th this is great music, but it's importantly built and founded on scripture and it must be. And these people, even without all the trappings, were able to worship God because they esteemed his word, and they understood him rightly. So what is worship? I'm going to give you my quick definition and then an even better one that isn't mine. <laughs> worship happens when the Holy Spirit moves a person to think, speak, or act in a way that rightly expresses the goodness or beauty of God. That's what worship is. So you can watch the sunrise and worship God. You can read a verse of the Bible and it hits you and you just go, Wow, God, you're so good, and you worship. If the only time you worship is when you come to church on the weekend, you're probably not worshiping, right? The better definition that I'll give you for it is from Richard Foster. Better because it's simple. He said, worship is spirit touching spirit. When the spirit of God in a redeemed person gets called by God himself to a place of right thinking or acting or behaving, that's worship. It's spirit touching spirit. There were visible expressions here. I mean, if you look again in Nehemiah chapter 8, notice what the people did. They stood. They blessed the Lord verbally. They said, amen, amen, which just means so be it or let it be that way. They lifted their hands. They bowed their heads. They put their faces on the ground. It was obvious that they were having a moment with God. But here's what you need to know. Visible expressions of worship cannot substitute for invisible experiences of worship. If the latter part of that is not happening, the, the, the first part of that's not going to substitute for it. It begins right here. In the quiet place of our own soul, are we worshipers of God 
so that when we come together, we get to enjoy this incredible corporate experience of lifting up the name of Jesus together because it's been happening throughout our own week. Number four, number four marks of kingdom movement, and we see it again in the passage, is a posture of repentance. Now remember that these individuals had just finished an incredible and almost miraculous building project, a massive wall, 10 feet thick, all the way around the huge city in 52 days. They could have rolled their shoulders back. This could have been a celebration of themselves, right? And yet in verse 9, we see these words, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Here's why. For many of these people, they had been exiles outside the city of Jerusalem. They had the oral traditions of Yahweh and the temple and all that was God. But for the first time in their life, they're standing in the presence of a priest who is reading the law of God, reading the scripture over them. And they're going, but I'm so far from that. I'm nothing like that. And and they're broken and they're weeping. They're going, if that's what God desires from me, I'm I'm not worthy of that. And and their sin causes them to be broken to the point where they're weeping. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever come face to face with how broken you are and how desperately you need a savior? Pause there for a second. Don't fly by that. Is there a moment, is there a time in your life where you go, I remember clearly when just this sense came over me and if it has come to you, it is a gift of the Holy Spirit where you went, oh God, I am so unworthy. I'm so unable to earn this. I have no hope except if there is grace, I need it. And the good thing is, there is grace for that. When we talk about a posture of repentance, let me break down that word because it's kind of a Bible word. Repentance simply means that you change your mind and you change direction. These people were going in a certain direction, lawlessly, you know, outside the city of Jerusalem, not understanding the ways and the will of God. And as they heard, they began weeping, and God began to reposition them to be people of the word and to do the will of God. And it was, that's what repentance is. It's a changing from one way to another way. This is what Peter called for in Acts 2, 37, 38, the first Christian sermon ever preached. And this is the response. It says, now when the people heard it, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna give you a chance later this evening and also those watching online, I wanna bring you to a moment where you can make a decision. If you've never experienced a repentance, a a moment of turning from sin to your Savior, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that in just a few moments. But but we're going to get to one more thing that's really important here, because surprisingly, here's what happens. The spiritual leaders in Judah interrupt the people in the middle of their repentance. Look look again at Nehemiah 8, verse 9. We won't read that whole part, but listen. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. You're going, guys, this is what you wanted. I mean, this is a good thing. The people are repenting. They're broken. They're weeping over their sin. Here's the fifth mark of kingdom movement, and perhaps the most important. Kingdom movements are marked by the power of grace. 
there was no difference between this generation of Jewish people and the one that were sent into exile. They were doing the same things. They had the same broken commandments, the same idolatrous hearts, the same godless alliances and allegiances. They were no different. They were no better. Here's what happened. Sin had taken God's people away. Grace brought them home. Sin took them away. Grace brought them home. And they stood there and they wept because they knew they didn't deserve to be there any more than their ancestors who had sinned against God. It was simply an act of grace. Y'all, this is so much more true for us who are followers of Jesus. This is what Paul dove into in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I'm going to read this, this entire passage here. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will barely ever die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the great hope of Christians. If you've had any confusion over the last several years about what a Christian is, a Christian is not a political group, it's, it's not a, a, a club, it's not people that go to church. A Christian is a person who has experienced this, who is going one direction, and God stepped in and graciously said, you're going to go a new direction. I have given my son to save you. I'm giving my spirit to transform you. And you walk in that. That's what belief, that's what faith is. And, and for some reason, as I read these verses in Nehemiah chapter 8, and I saw what the, the leaders of, of the people of Judah did, I was just so proud of them. Is it weird to say that? I'm like, I'm living in the 21st century. I'm proud of these like people who are over 2,000 years old or whatever, right? But you know Why? Because all of us have experienced abusive leaders. All of us have experienced manipulation at the hands of leaders. All of us have experienced leaders who just didn't get it. And Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites stepped into the people's brokenness and said, that's enough for now. Go ahead and rejoice. We're going to celebrate the power of grace. They say, eat the fat, drink the wine, even give it to those who weren't prepared. Be generous with it. And here's what I've come to believe. It is right to weep over our sin and it is right to rejoice because of our Savior. The weeping was right. It's the right response when when you confront your sin, when you become face to face with it. It is right to weep and yet it is right to rejoice because like Paul said, we've been reconciled to God. We've been redeemed. Let me read two more verses and then we're gonna close. Romans 5, 20 and 21. Later in the same passage we just read, he says this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I've just come to a place, I'm 39 years old, I don't feel the need to, 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 to act like we're not sinning, or that we're not sinners, right? Do you know why people hide their sin? Because they think sin is all-powerful. So many grew up in rigid, conservative Christian homes 
where they were told, or, or they came to believe one way or another, man, if you do this sin, or if this comes into the light, you're just done for. I've come to believe that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. If you belong to Jesus, if you're a child of God, you don't have to hide your sin. You can walk in the light. Because where sin is in the life of a believer, there is grace to cover the blood of Jesus to forgive. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.